Well, this morning, I'm, I'm tackling a super easy and not at all controversial topic for us. It's everyone's favorite thing to talk about at church. So uh, if I haven't upset some people or made some people feel uncomfortable, I'll just say I haven't done my job well this morning, okay? So we're talking about money. And money is everyone's favorite topic to talk about, especially at church, you know? But it's something that Jesus talked about frequently, and it's something that the Bible has a lot to say about. And so I would be remiss if I didn't, uh, if I didn't cover it. And everyone who has money wants to spend it in a way that they get the best possible return out of that money. If we're talking about investments... Everyone wants to invest their money in such a way that they get the greatest possible return from their investments. So with investing money in RRSPs or whatever uh, kind of investment we're looking at, you want the greatest return with the smallest risk. But unfortunately, that's not how the real world works. The way the real world works is if you want little risk, you get little return. But if you want a great return, you have to have a great risk. But would you believe me if I told you that Jesus actually promised a hundred times return on your investments? Now, before you start grabbing stones and thinking, well, this guy's gone off the rails. Now, Adrian's become a prosperity preacher. Jesus isn't necessarily talking about money. But Jesus is challenging us to invest our, our resources and our money and ultimately our whole lives in such a way that he promises a hundredfold return. But what Jesus truly cares about is investing in his kingdom, not in your comfort. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And I want to start with even just a little story of what this can look like so we can get on the same page of what we're talking about. When Karis and I were in uh, Edmonton, we were part of a small group that had a couple that was uh, young and he was going to uh, university and getting his PhD. And uh, PhDs are very expensive. And they were from another country and so that was, made it even more expensive. And they went through a time where they were in quite financial hardship. And uh, somebody obviously heard about it because one Bible study, uh, we were praying together about their financial need and praying that God would move and help them. And uh, a couple weeks later, they came and they just had such big smiles on their face. They were just vibrating with happiness because someone had anonymously given them a large gift of uh, money. And so they, they had recognized, yes, God gave us this money. And they knew, yeah, God gave it through somebody else. They didn't know who because the person gave through the church, through a pastor at our church anonymously. And so because the pastor knew, they were able to pass a thank you note back. But this couple recognized that God had blessed them. Even though he had encouraged somebody else to do it, be the uh, source or the seeming source, God was ultimately the source of this blessing. And so sometimes uh, for in our own lives, it's hard to receive help from somebody that we know. If we say we need help, we need something, it's hard to receive it from friends or family. But if we receive it anonymously it becomes a lot easier to say yes. Because then we can recognize that it's actually God that's giving it. And we can recognize that the church is at work. And this is what this couple realized. That even though the money came from others, that it ultimately came from God. In our passage this morning, we're looking at Mark 10, 17 to 31. In uh, some of the, the Gospels, this is called the rich young ruler. 
uh, is the subtitle, but in here it just calls it as a man. It's just a man who came up. But I'm reading out of the NIV, the 2011, so follow along on the screen, or if you have a hard copy Bible, flip there, or an iBible, swipe there now. Starting in verse 17, it says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal, inter, yeah, inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. May God bless the reading of his word. In our wealthy culture, we tend to value economic success above the condition of someone's soul. We look at someone and say, well, they're wealthy. They must, they must have things going on. They must be good. And people are more likely to ask themselves, how do I get the best bang for my buck? Or how do I get the highest return on my money? What's the best value of spending my money? Rather than how can they best serve God? Which that sabotages for those who are already would say they're committed Christians. It sacrifices our level of commitment to God. And it leads to this dangerous complacency in our faith. When we allow this mindset of our culture to seep in. One commentator put it this way as the question that most people would tend to ask. And it, they would think that, or say, religious commitment should cost something. They recognize that, but not too much. So devotion to Jesus should cost something. We recognize that. If we want to be quote-unquote religious, if we want to follow after Jesus, it should cost us something. But we don't want it to cost that much. We just want it to cost a little bit. 
But what Jesus calls us to is to invest in his kingdom, not in our comfort. So looking at this passage in more depth to try and understand what's going on here, what's at play. In verse 17, this man comes to Jesus and his whole posture is this formal address. It literally says he comes and goes on his knees and begs Jesus. And he uses a very nice title. He calls him good teacher. It's like saying you're a great person. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's, this whole address is full of flattery. He doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't know much about him. But he's, he's formal and he flatters Jesus. And basically his question that he's trying to ask Jesus is essentially this. Am I already good enough or is there something a little more that I need to do? And of course his hope is that Jesus would say, No, you're good. You're already doing a good job. Keep going. His assumption though in the way that he asks this is that it's up to him. Even the, the question he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? And maybe uh, for you, maybe you've asked that question of God in, in your prayer life or maybe in your walk. But you say, what do I need to do to get in to heaven? Or sometimes we put it in other ways and maybe we wouldn't verbalize this. But what's the bare minimum that I need to do just to get in? What's, what's the least amount? I know that there's this thing called radical Christianity that sacrifice everything, give up your whole life. I know that that's there. But what's the least amount? Like, what's the, what's the bottom of the line? I don't need to be the top, but what's the bare minimum? That's what this guy is asking. And he wants to make sure that he's, he thinks he's followed the rules, but he wants to make sure he hasn't missed any details. And back in their day, uh, in Jewishness, in, in the Jewish culture, there was all these different groups and different flavors of being a Jew. And each of these groups had their own interpretation of the law and their own specific rules that would follow. And so he's coming up to Jesus and saying, okay, what's your list? What's your rules? What's your interpretation? And Jesus' answer takes him completely off guard. And Jesus actually, when this man flatters him, he's expecting Jesus to be equally polite. And Jesus responds basically with a, with a frank rebuke. In verse, four, in verse 18, he just cuts out the flattery. He says, no one is good. Why do you call me good? No one is good. And this would be reminiscent in the Old Testament of Psalm 53.3. Or in the New Testament, Romans 3. It says, no one is good, not even one. Everyone has fallen short of the grace of God. That's where, that's where Jesus starts. He says, why do you call me good? Now, Jesus was good, and he was God. But this guy doesn't recognize that. That's not what this guy is saying. What he's saying is basically challenging his idea that he can be good enough for God to accept him. But Jesus starts out, no one is good. And then he goes on to say that only God is good. Everyone else that's not God is sinful. And then verse 19, he summarizes the commandments. And it's a really interesting summary of the commandments. He, he uh, focuses, if you know the, the Ten Commandments memorized... He basically skips over number one to four, which are all about God and our relationship directly with God. And then he uh, talks about five to nine, number five to nine. So there's a few commandments he goes through and he skips number 10 together. And then he actually adds a different one that's not in there. He says, you do, do not defraud. You shall not defraud. And so he's basically summarizing the core of the commandments, Jewishness 101. This is the basics. This is, they would have been taught this as kids. 
But then in verse 20 to 21, this guy essentially is saying, yeah, I know that. I'm a Jew. I grew up knowing that. And Jesus even assumed that. He says, you know the commandments. This guy's a Jew. He knew what the rules were. He says, yeah, I grew up in church. I grew up going to kids ministry. I grew up going to youth. I know what all the right things to do and the wrong things are. That's great. But like, what else? What else does it mean? Or perhaps he's waiting for Jesus to say when he says, I followed all of those since I boy. Maybe instead of saying, yeah, I know all that. Maybe he's saying, well, yeah, I did all that. So yeah, he's waiting for Jesus to say, good job, buddy. You're in. You're great. Maybe he's waiting for a pat on the back. But Jesus, his response is quite interesting. It says that he looks at this man with love. And when we think of love sometimes, we just had Valentine's Day, you know, nice card, nice flowers, nice words you write in the card. You know, I, I, sent, I gave Karison a funny one. It had uh, milk and cookies, and it says, you complete me. You know, it's, it's this fun little thing. So I, had, I got a little play on words in there. It was kind of cute. But, so maybe that's the love Jesus is saying? No, it's, it's actually not. It says, because he loved him, he challenged him with the truth. The truth it's something that's hard to hear sometimes, but because Jesus loves him, he, he nails this guy with the truth, which is hard. But he says he lacks one thing. And Jesus doesn't actually specify what that one thing, but he does tell him how to obey him. Instead, he gives him the solution and something to do. He says, sell everything and give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Now, for those of us who are with us, uh, the, at the beginning of this series, we looked at one message on Jesus calling his disciples. And essentially, when Jesus called his disciples, he just pointed at them and said, you come follow me now. He didn't have a prerequisite. He didn't say, well, you have to do this, you have to do that, and then come follow me. No, he just came up to them and said, come follow me. But this guy, obviously there's something going on there more than just following Jesus. Because he says, go sell everything you have and then come follow me. And verse 22, this guy didn't like that. He says he left sad because he was very rich. So just, just imagine this again. This man came up to Jesus and was begging him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him. And then he walks away. So this man was just given the choice between his earthly wealth and his comfort, the way he lived his lifestyle and eternal life. And he was told what it, what it required. And he chose his earthly wealth and his comfort rather than following after Jesus. And so Jesus said this man lacked one thing. But we're going to look at three quick ways that he shows this lack. And the first is that this man actually lacked for nothing. It said he was a very rich man. He had great wealth. And he obviously decided he had too much to give up. It wasn't worth following Jesus if he had to give up what he had. And money actually brings lots of things. Money brings honor. It brings respect, admiration, admiration power, uh, beauty, sex. That's all the things that it says that money buys us. But it can't make us holy. And it obviously can't buy us eternal life. And the other thing is that you can't actually buy happiness. You know, there's all those commercials that are coming out now that are trying to say, well, of course you can't buy happiness because I don't have enough money. If I had enough money, then I would be able to buy happiness. But they did this uh, study on happiness between 1957 and 1990. And they studied these people and how much money they had and then how much they reported 
how happy they were. And they found out that even though the per capita income of people more than doubled in real money, so with inflation and everything taken in, these people doubled in how much money they had, the exact same percentage said that they were happy. They had double the money. There should be double the people that are happy, right? No. The exact same people uh, reported being uh, just as happy before they had more money. And so many people in our world have plenty to live on, but little to live for. Happiness isn't about just what you have. It's about something more. Making more money doesn't make you more happy. And many people, maybe without being able to articulate it, sense that there's something missing in their lives. And to fast forward to the gospel, that something is Jesus. Without a real relationship with Jesus, money is worthless. This man had the opportunity to step into a relationship with Jesus, but he cared more about his money than about his salvation. And so material success allows people to live in comfort, but not to meet our basic spiritual needs. And in verse 23 and 24, Jesus goes on to say, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And this amazed the disciples. And Jesus repeats himself in uh, general terms and said, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of heaven? He broadens it. Just in general, it's hard to reach, to become into the kingdom of heaven. And during Jesus' time, and even these days, there's the idea that if you had wealth, then you were blessed by God. God loved you. God favored you. And then the reverse was true, that if you didn't have money, if you were poor, that you were being judged by God. And that, that same idea comes in today, as I mentioned, in prosperity preaching. It's the thought that if you, if you uh, are blessed, then you should be wealthy. And if you're poor, then there's something wrong. You don't have enough faith or you don't have something. There's something missing in your life. But Jesus actually says that it's a burden and it's actually in some ways dangerous to be rich. He uses this ironic metaphor in verse 25 about this camel going through an eye of a needle. Now, I have never seen a camel in person. Maybe some of you have, but I've seen needles in person. And I have an approximate idea how big a camel is, and that just doesn't work. And there are some commentators that, that get a little bit, uh, try, to, try to make this work and try to make it understandable. And in Jerusalem, there's this gate called the Needle Gate. And then they're saying, well, camels, the only way to get through is if they took off their packs and they knelt and they kind of went through. But that wasn't what Jesus was talking about. What Jesus was talking about was a little, literal needle eye and a camel. And even if it's a big needle, even if, let's say it was a sewing needle if they, or a giant sewing needle of huge thread, Camel still doesn't fit through that. I'm not great at math or picturing those kind of things, but it doesn't work. And Jesus is saying it's more difficult for somebody who's wealthy to go into heaven than for that camel to go through the eye of the needle. He's not saying it's impossible for that camel to go through the eye of the needle, but we know that it is. And so, but imagine that you could get that camel through the eye of the needle. What would it take? What would you have to do to that camel to get it through? You'd have to stretch that thing way out. And that would be pretty messy. You, big blender, yeah. But whatever, you'd have to thread it together. You'd have to do whatever to get it through that eye of the needle. But it's sure not going to come out the other side the same, right? It's going to have to go through a complete transformation. 
it's going to have to have nothing the same about it anymore. And so God's saying to get into the kingdom of heaven takes so much more than just a minor sacrifice, just this minor thing. It's this major transformative work. And one of the things is that riches don't make it into heaven. The riches don't make it into heaven that we can bring. The, anything earthly doesn't make it into heaven. But Jesus did tell this guy, if he invested in the kingdom of heaven, if he went and sold his stuff and gave it to the poor, he would have riches in heaven. And the Bible talks lots about that, but the, whatever that looks like in our own imaginations or what it looks like, I think it's, it's people. And I think it's other people that, are, that know and come to experience the love of God. I think that's what matters in heaven, is the fate of other people's eternities. But whatever that looks like, whether you think it's actual gold crowns or whatever that looks like, he promised that he would have treasure in heaven. Okay, now, when we're listening to some, a message like this and we're looking at this passage and we go, boy, okay, I understand it's hard for rich people to get into heaven. Whew, glad I'm not rich. Whew, that Warren Buffett, he's got troubles. That whoever we name of our friends and family. But, you know, we live in a very, very, very rich nation. And even, even if we have a very, uh, a very low standard in, within Canada, just being even at the poverty level in Canada is richer than the vast majority of the world. The vast majority of the world makes less than $10 a day. And so I'm not to minimize, it's, it's hard to not have a, money in Canada because Canada is an expensive place to live. But even just having some of the world's best health care, having clean drinking water, having, uh, having recreation, entertainment, safe transport, having general security, having a government that's uh, for the most part free of corruption, Having, uh, what? hey, I, I would say that no matter who's in. I'm not trying to get too, pl- money, money in politics is too hard to dig in one sermon, okay? So that's not where I was going, but didn't we say everyone is sinful, not even, no one's good enough? So it doesn't matter who's in government. If they're human, it's imperfect, there's corruption, there's, pro- okay, whatever. I'm going to stop digging right now. Nice try. So we live in Canada. Mostly safe, mostly good. Do you know that there's still 40 million slaves in the world? And we live in relative freedom. And some of those slaves live in Canada. There's sex trafficking. There's prostitution. There's still problems. There's still issues. But for the most part, the vast majority of us are rich beyond compare. We have great comfort versus many generations that came before us. But Jesus is saying, if this man invested in the poor and in helping others, that he would have treasure in heaven, and the same comes to us. And that's challenging, not just for you guys, that's challenging for me. I've been thinking about this sermon all the last week, and it's, it's been digging in my heart and hard, and thinking about some of the poverty in the world, and that I feel like, I, I live rich, I have comfort, I have wealth. And what, what do I do with that? And so this rich man chose to walk away from a chance at eternal life because he didn't want to give up his comfortable lifestyle. And investing in ourselves only, investing only in ourselves is a terrible investment. You know, when we get to the end of our life, if, if Jesus says, what did you do with what I gave you? Well, you know, I, I always had a new car. You know, I always had a great house. And it's, 
you know, God blesses, God gives things, and I'm not saying that everyone has to go sell everything they have, but investing only in ourselves and not in the kingdom, not in the needs and helps of others is a dangerous thing. And the second of all, the man lacked trust in God. This man trusted his money and his wealth rather than God. Jesus said, come and follow me and you'll be blessed. Come and follow me and you'll have eternal life. But this man chose to put his trust in himself. Following Jesus requires radical trust. And this man obeyed the commandments that suited him, but he resisted giving his whole heart to God. He didn't put his whole faith and his whole trust in God. He depended on himself. And are there times when we do the same? That we put our trust in the bank account rather than our trust in God? In a culture that's grown weary of commitment and risk, few are willing to put their faith in Jesus. Few are willing to risk it all for following Jesus. To have life, we have to trust God and give up our quest to create our own security. If we're trying to to trust ourselves and and that's it, then we're fooling ourselves. Jesus doesn't always call everyone to give up everything. He actually, uh, he dined with the tax collector Zacchaeus. And he never brought up money. He never told Zacchaeus, well, you want to come follow me, then give up everything. No. Jesus came over to his house, and Zacchaeus was so overcome by Jesus' compassion and love to him, and that that love that Jesus had for him, that he wanted to give back. He realized he had taken advantage of poor people and taken advantage of people. So he said, anyone I've defrauded, I'll give back four times as much. So if I took a dollar, I'll give them four dollars back. Now, Zacchaeus still would have been a tax collector, and still would have had a, a, by comparison, wealthy lifestyle. But he used it to bless other people. He used it to pay back what he owed to people. And Jesus, uh, often throughout the Gospels, it talks about him going to this house, and people coming there and ministering to people. And this, this very likely would have been a very rich person, because he allowed Jesus to come, bringing however many disciples, and have open house parties whenever he wanted. And this guy that never even talks about his name or the exact thing. But obviously this guy used his wealth and his house and his resources to be a blessing to others. Jesus didn't make him sell it over to him and say, give it to me and then it's my house now. No, Jesus let him keep it because he was open-handed with it. He used it and invested in the kingdom and in helping other people. So Jesus doesn't ask everyone to give up everything. But this man, Jesus said, obviously had an idol of money in his life. And so Jesus went straight for that point of biggest resistance. He went straight for the idol of trusting money rather than God. So in our own lives, we can see evidence of sometimes when we've had something, we just want just a little bit more. You know, if I have a nice car and then someone drives an even nicer car, we go, oh, I wish I I could have afforded that little bit nicer car. Now, I know I'm not the only one that would, would say that. We have that tendency in us. It's that natural sinful tendency that we just want a little, little bit more. But the desire for a little bit more is unsatiable. It's insatiable. We can't possibly fill that void with anything but with Jesus. And so this desire to accumulate will ultimately destroy our relationships, our unity, and our relationship with God most of all. So somehow we need to learn to distinguish between necessities and luxuries. What are the things that we actually need? And then what are the things that are wants? And sometimes God will bless us with wants. 
as long as we don't try and trick ourselves into thinking our wants are needs. And so this is a constant battle to reject our desires for luxuries and this ongoing effort to slip into just getting more and more wants. We have to constantly be checking our hearts. And so salvation requires more than just a passing nod to Jesus to say, yeah, you're good, you're a good teacher. What must I do? What's the bare minimum? And so Jesus is a good teacher, but honest attempts just to do good and just to be a nice person are not enough to have salvation. To enter the kingdom of heaven, we must submit to Jesus' rule and to have everything we are and everything we own and everything that is about us submitted to his rule. And say, it's no longer mine. So the way, the, the term that the Bible often uses is stewards. We are stewards. And a steward, just like in Lord of the Rings, the steward of the Gondor was the, the head leader of their nation because the king was gone. And so he took co- care of and controlled the city and he was in power. But he didn't own any of it. None of it was his. And so if we are stewards of everything God gives us, it means that the money that we have, the houses that we have, the the cars, the time, energy, talents, everything that we have isn't actually ours. And so if we hold it open-handed and every day say, Jesus, what do you want me to do with this? And you know, the nice thing is, he lets us use it for ourselves sometimes. But then as long as we're not trying to hold on to it and say, no, Jesus, you can't have that, you can't have that, you can't have that, then that's the time when he might go, no, give it to me. Because it becomes an idol in our lives. And so boy is that hard to do though. You know every month I sit down in front of my computer and I figure out my income. And then I try and figure out the percentage I want to give. I have a number in my head but it's different for every person so I'm not going to say it. But I sit down in my computer and I figure it out. And sometimes this bad part of my heart goes, I don't know if I can afford that. I don't know if I can do that. And it's this wrestle that I have to check my heart and go, well, maybe I'll pay back God next month. Maybe I'll get there next month. But no, then I have to go, no, it's a choice. I have to choose to live by faith. So maybe the numbers don't make sense in my head, but I have to choose. No, it's God's. He gave it all to me. I'm going to give a portion back. And it's this, this discipline constantly that I have to discipline myself. Money isn't my security. God is my security. And so Jesus, Jesus loved this rich man enough to challenge his greatest area of need. And he came to him and he does the same for us. And the truth is, Jesus doesn't need our money. You know, God is the God of infinite possibilities. God could just make money appear if he wanted to. But he wants our hearts. And the Bible says, where your, your heart is, your treasure will be also. So our treasure follows our heart. It doesn't say where, where uh, your treasure is, your heart is. It says where your heart is, your treasure is. And so where we put our hearts is where our treasure falls. So if our heart is in Jesus, even if he's letting us hold on to it, our treasure is with him. And so invest in your relationship with Jesus. Invest in everything and trust in anything other than God will ultimately disappoint you. If you, build a, if you try and build a security net of money in investments... The market can crash like that and your safety net is gone. But if your investment is in God, then nothing can take that away. And there's this great phrase one commentator says. It says, the impossible becomes possible when divine power infuses a disciple's life through faith. And that's a big phrase, so I'm going to break it down. But the impossible becomes possible. God is the God of possible. He can do anything. 
And he said salvation is impossible with humanity. We can't possibly earn it, buy it, be good enough. We can't get there. But he makes it possible. And it says when divine power, when his Holy Spirit works in our lives, he can make it possible. And then the last phrase, through faith. Faith in Jesus is the conduit that allows us to have salvation. That allows us to have his Holy Spirit work in our lives to make the impossible possible. And so in verse 29 to 30, Jesus promises that those who invest in the kingdom actually gain more in this life and in the next. They gain a hundred times more. More homes, more family, more fields. And they gain by becoming a family of God and to sharing in this community. And so what does this look like? This doesn't mean that if you give God your house, you sell him over the mortgage, that he's going to give you a hundred houses. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you'll own more things. But what it means in this beautiful picture of the church is that if you're part of the church of God, that if you, if you have your home so open to God, so open-handed, then other people reciprocate in the same way. That you can go over to Cuba and be with Christians and their house is your house. That they're your brothers, your sisters, your fathers, your brothers, your mothers, your children. That it's this family of God that you, you don't lose by investing in God. You actually gain. You gain a family. You gain friends. You gain resources because it's all God's anyway. And if it's surrendered to God, he multiplies. It makes it so much more powerful. And then Mark throws in this little phrase that I don't really like. He says, and you'll also gain a hundred times more suffering. You'll gain more suffering. You'll gain more, 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 I like the first part, more homes, more family, more friends, more relations. Those things, that's great. But then Mark throws in this little persecution bit. You get more persecution. Yay! That's everyone's favorite, right? But it's reality. And Mark, when he was speaking at this time, Jesus was already dead, rose, and it had, it had been probably decades since. And so the church was already experiencing persecution. They weren't, they weren't fooling themselves about it. They knew persecution was there. And so if they just had someone in, coming in with uh, prosperity preaching, you get so much more stuff. You get so, they're like, I don't care about stuff. What about what's all this pain? Why are these people being so mean to me? They're taking my stuff. And, but that's the reality of a surrendered life to Jesus means that we may experience pain. No, I shouldn't say may. We will experience pain. We'll experience hardship. We'll have friends. We'll have family that won't like us. They'll be mean to us. That will maybe disown us. Maybe not have a relationship with us. We'll have people that will think we're weird. That will think we're freaks if we're doing it properly. Because sacrificial relationship with Jesus makes us so different from the world. That we live radically different. And the status quo of the world doesn't like people that are different. And so very lastly, this man lacked compassion for others. This man, Jesus came and told him to, uh, that to do the commandments, to fulfill the law and the prophets. And he says, I do all those things since I was a boy. But when Jesus summarized the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, it was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second was like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So this, man, this man said he was loving God, but he wasn't loving other people. Because he cared more about his own comfort. So people were clothed in filth. And even these days, people are clothed in filth, dying of hunger. And his house was filled with many good things. Our houses are filled with many good things. None of which are going out to them. Or for our case, hopefully, some of which is not going out to them. He was, this man was imprisoned. He was imprisoned by his own concern for his own comfort. 
that he couldn't come to the freedom that was offered to him in Jesus. May that not be true for any of us. That our personal comfort matters more than Jesus. And so this, this man couldn't see what Jesus was doing. Jesus spent his whole three years of ministry time feeding the poor, healing the sick, and eventually dying to bring life to the spiritually dead. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. So how could a rich person that was in relationship with Jesus claim that he loved Jesus and yet didn't care about other people? You know, there was this survey done in the U.S. uh, about slave labor. And it said that uh, if you could buy your, your clothes and your items for cheaper, significantly cheaper, even if you were guaranteed to know that it was done by slaves, would you still buy it? And I'll, a small percentage, albeit, but a percentage of people said yes. If it was cheaper, I'd still buy clothes I knew were made by slaves in China. Yeah, I, I would still buy a car. I don't, if it's made by slaves, if it's cheaper, yeah, sure. And that's, that's a sickness in our culture, that we would have no compassion on other people to think about what our consuming things does for them. That shows a true lack of compassion. So this land's lack of concern for the poor should challenge us to show compassion for the poor. Now, I want to close with just two quick uh, opposite stories for uh, the contrast between how to live for investing in ourselves or investing in the kingdom of heaven. And the first is out of this, uh, this exploration to, uh, Antarct- or to the Arctic, rather. And in 19- 1845, rather, there was this really well-publicized exploit going from England to the Arctic to try and explore. And the, the men that were on this journey were very wealthy. They were royal officers in the Navy, which was just for the elite of the elite. And their ship, uh, they chose to outfit it uh, with a large library, a hand organ, China place settings, and sterling uh, silver flatware that had the initial and crest of every single person that was uh, part of this gentleman's group that was going to explore the Arctic. And it, it was stuffed so much so that they had to sacrifice some of the coal they were bringing and food that they were bringing. And so later, after they all died... Search parties found clumps of bodies of men together in the freezing cold waistline that uh, some of them had silk embroidered uniforms that were very fancy that were meant more for ballrooms than for the frozen wasteland they were in. And then other that was carrying all of his uh, sterling silver flatware in his pockets. They had ran out of food. They had ran out of coal. They had ran out of everything. The ship dropped them off and they all died because they cared more about their comfort than about even the practicalities of exploration. They, they weren't willing to sacrifice having just whatever plates or, or uh, small library, maybe bring a book or two each. No, they needed this huge library, this hand organ, and that was it. And do you think, do you think any of those guys that died were sitting there going, oh, I wish I brought some more china. You know, I wish I brought some more f- silver uh, forks and knives. That's really what I needed. No, like that would be ludicrous. And yet, some of us will get to the end of our lives and think, would we think to ourselves, oh, I wish I had bought a better car. Or I wish I had done this. Or, no, like that's, that's ludicrous. And yet, some of us will get there. That we'll get to the end of our lives and we'll, we'll look ludicrous because we went, 
I invested so much in myself and not in helping and loving others. Now, the other story uh, is a personal story, and I don't do this to try and build myself up, so please don't do that, but, um, but it's a little bit of a testimony of Karison and I uh, trying to show faith sacrificially. And we went through this season where uh, we just really felt like we were uh, supposed to give sacrificially. I was in school, and in order, I've told this before, but in order to have enough money to actually start our family, uh, I built a basement suite in our, uh, the house we were in, and uh, so we gave sacrificially. Uh, it was large for us. It wouldn't be uh, large for some of you, maybe. But, uh, and then, unfortunately, within a, a month or so, our renter moved out. We tried to find a renter, couldn't find a renter, so we weren't getting that income. And then, uh, and school kept coming and having to pay for school and having to pay to live and having to pay for heat and everything It was in the winter. And we, we went through a time where I actually thought to myself, I think that was, maybe it was a mistake. Maybe I was foolish giving to God. Maybe God didn't tell me that. Maybe that was just me. Maybe I was being silly. Maybe I was being dumb. Why did I do that? And thinking, no, I, I, I think God was, give, was telling me to. But then some amazing things happened that we, we realized only could have been God. And the first of which is that uh, we went out uh, to uh, try and find a swing set for Liberty because she was getting the age she really liked swinging. We wanted a swing set. It wasn't a need. It was a want. We recognized that. So we looked, and uh, they were quite expensive, brand new in the store, 500 to a couple grand. You could pay whatever you wanted, I guess. And we didn't have that much. So there, Karison brought it up with someone at her work, and they said, oh, I have a swing set you could buy. I'm trying to sell. So we went over to her house, looked at it. We said, oh, yeah, that's pretty nice. Like, how much? She said, oh, for you guys, it's free. Don't worry about it. So first, we got a free swing set. And then uh, we, went out, uh, we went out on a date, and we, didn't, we couldn't afford dinner and dessert, so we're like, we'll just get dessert. We'll just go to dessert. We'll go on the cheap. Went to this, uh, this restaurant, and uh, the service wasn't uh, very good. There was apparently a server that went off shift and one that went on shift, and no one told the on shift nurse or the on shift uh, server that they were supposed to serve us. So we sat for quite a while. We were chatting. We were enjoying it, but uh, we got ignored. And then they they were so apologetic, and we were like, "Oh, that's fine, that's fine." And then at the end of the meal, she came back uh, and said, "There's no bill. There's no charge. Thanks for coming. Uh, we hope you guys enjoy it, and we'll come back one day." And so we got free uh, free dessert. That was pretty sweet. It was fondue. It was awesome. And then, uh, and then we went to uh, this kid's play place, and we're like, well, we're getting pretty hungry, but we, uh, and Liberty was just starting to play at supper, we were like, well, we can't, can't afford to all eat, we'll just get one sandwich and split it. And so they, they cook the sandwich, and they come out, and it was a little darker, and they're like, uh, we didn't say anything, and they said, oh, well, we, we kind of burnt it, so we'll give you another one for free. And so then we got lunch for free, it was awesome, because I would have been still hungry with only a quarter of a sandwich or whatever I would have been left with. And then we got uh, someone from our church just anonymously handed us money. They just handed us money in an envelope. We didn't even know them. We never talked to them. They just said, I felt like God was telling me to give this to you. And so these circumstances, we realized that if we hadn't given the money that we gave, we could have done all of these things very easily on our own with just the money that we had. And we never would have had the opportunity for God to bless us in these ways. And so that we, we recognize, we know in our heads, everything we have is God. But when, when you have the money and you just buy things, it's, it's sometimes harder to realize that it's God giving it to you. But the way that God worked through that, we actually grew in faith. We gave sacrificially. We stepped out in faith. 
And then even though we're like, we started wondering and regretting it, God moved so powerfully. And so we recognize we never would have been blessed that way if we hadn't have given sacrificially. And so when we see God at work in our lives, we have this opportunity for all of us to invest in the kingdom or to invest in our own comfort. That's the, that's the option that we have. And so whatever that looks like for, for you as an individual, that's what it is. But the, the beautiful message of the gospel starts with some bad news. No one is good, not even one. So if you're asking yourself the question, what's the bare minimum I need to get in? That's the wrong question. The question is, or the way it starts is by saying, Jesus, I'm not good enough. I'm sinful, I'm broken, please forgive me. And then it's saying, I have nothing, you have everything. Please work in my life. And it's giving him over the keys to everything you own. And say, it's yours, do with what you want. And you know the amazing thing? He gives it all back. And then allows you to play with it. And to give it out, and to feel like you're doing something, even though it's his. That's the amazing thing. And so I want to I challenge you with three specific ways to act on this morning's message. And the first is to give. Look for opportunities to be generous. This isn't just money necessarily. Money is one way, but it can be with your time. Sometimes it's the easy thing is actually writing a check. But maybe it's seeing somebody in need and just saying, hey, can I have lunch with you? So just buying them food, sit down and have a meal with them. Or you see someone in need, just help them. You see someone that's lonely, pray with them. The second is to pray. Pray for God to grow your faith. It takes faith to walk in trust and obedience to him. And then the third is to invest. Invest your time, energy, talents, and finances in the kingdom. A hundred times reward. And I'm not saying that you're going to have a bigger house, a better car, a big boat, whatever it is. But there will be blessings for you in heaven. So would you please uh, join me in prayer as the worship team comes up to, to help us to close off the service today. Father God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace to us. And that you bless us in so many different ways. That you bless us uh, with finances, with this country to live in. And I pray that you would move powerfully in each of our individual lives. And that all of us would be people who would have generous hearts. That we would have open hands to you to say, God, whatever you want to do in and through me today, it's yours to do. And so I pray that we would be obedient and that we would be loving and generous and kind with what we are given, Jesus. And I pray for that investment in your kingdom, that we would see fruit. That us as a church, as individuals and as uh, guests and family and friends, that wherever we are and wherever we live and wherever we go, that we would see your hand at work, Jesus, and that we would joyfully be a part of it. So help us now as we respond with, uh, with musical worship, Jesus, to lift your name high. In your name we pray. Amen.